Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. And I'm Louis Fertel. And guess what's number one on Billboard? <laughs> Blue Can't Draw Hit em Up Style, just like it was on 9-11. <laughs> it really should be. Uh, I would love if we could make that a holiday classic. But no. Um, even though we're all at Neiman Marcus on a shopping spree at the moment, the answer is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, I, 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 my, it's my new favorite holiday tradition, seeing just the same four songs go up the charts and watch like Burl Ives take down Drake and 21 Savage. <laughs> I am actually fascinated that um, this is the one aspect of capitalism that we are all fully on board with. Just right. running up Mariah's numbers for this song as if she hasn't made enough money off of it. No. I mean, and also that she has this blitz every year where, you know, she had this video where she was on some sort of Peloton-like bike and she's dressed as a witch and then November 1st came along or December 1st came along and she was in her traditional, you know, um, sexy Mrs. Claus outfit all of a sudden. It's like we, and we, we love it every single year, even though it's like we just clocked out of the last Mariah Christmas phenomenon like two months ago. And she always manages to make, you know, like a moment out of it. You know, she's she's the the TikTok trend, you know, with her doing the like, it's time. Yes. Like she always has a good moment with it, though. So I'm like, as as long as she's going to keep being funny, why not? Right. And and that is a a crucial part of what she brings, you know, is uh, that kind of. Kind of an old-fashioned, almost Mae Westy humor to whatever she does. And I hope she doesn't lose that anytime soon because who has that? I mean, like, Kiki Palmer sort of has an old-fashioned Hollywood humor about her, but it's sort of an, mm-hmm. a rare trade altogether. Uh, you know who else appears uh, in the holiday season and you never hear from this man any other time of year? Who? Michael Buble. Oh, yeah. No. Like, I mean, like, the, basically the king of Christmas. But, like, do you ever think about this man until um, Christmas time comes around and then he's just on the charts and performing everywhere? And by the way, once upon a time, you would have said that was Josh Groban, basically. But mm-hmm. I feel like the Josh Groban star has uh, diminished a little bit, or at least the um, omnipresence of Josh Groban has diminished a little bit. Whereas if I walk into a toy store or whatever, Starbucks, like, I am way more likely to hear Michael Buble now. Mm, well, you know, of David's Foster's kids, um, <laughs> I guess Michael Buble is the one who's risen up more than Josh Groban. Although, I, Josh Groban has been on my mind because um, I have tickets to see him already in Sweeney Todd on Broadway. So, right. Oh, that's right, because he kind of moved to Broadway. And he was in the, uh, the War and Peace musical, whatever that was called, Natasha Pierre, blank, blank, blank. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a vibe. 
Um, <laughs> Tall hats, we like them. Yes. <laughs> I'm like excited for him and Sweeney Todd. Although I now have to move my um, Broadway tickets for that night um, because it's the same night SZA announced her tour today. And the New York show is the same night as my Sweeney Todd tickets. So I, Have we talked about that album? I Well, it just dropped. Uh, yes, no, <laughs> I've listened to it myself. Yes. Um, I guess it's just not really for me, but people love it. <laughs> it's weird because I feel like you listen to, you love listening to women talk about depressing subjects. Yes. No, I, I literally, one of my favorite albums is called Mental Illness by Amy Mann. Yes. <laughs> Guess what she talks uh, about? <laughs> mm, uh, I don't know, the movie Clueless. And who would you say is mentally ill and clueless? I think we know. Oh, really? Uh, I'm going with... I'm going with Breck and Meyer. Something about that attitude is all wrong in that movie. You're not you my friend. St- you give a Stacey Dash a pass? Oh, oh, the real life Stacey Dash. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Diagnosing her would be, shall we say, above my pay grade. <laughs> um, I l- really love this album. I think it's fantastic. But I will say it's also... Not for me. See, this is what I mean. I I am very into this album. Um, I have a lot more to say, but I'm going to save that for my keep it. Oh, so, interesting. All right, I didn't yeah. I didn't mean to give it away just yet. No, that's okay. We like we like to tease um, segments on this show. Oh yeah, we're like Gypsy Rose Lee. One veil comes off at a time. Yes. <laughs> um, this week is going to be a um, big episode for the White Lotus heads who listen to us and that means all gay men who after this finale all went to twitter and needed to each individually tell us <laughs> why megan fahey was great on the show each one of them was like only i understood what she did meanwhile it's just an evidently good performance it didn't need to be explained faggots it was the representation of that tweet that uh someone sent out once where they were like um gay men can't ever just say they like the song right <laughs> right. It's like their whole universe. And like, yeah, no, they have to write like a, yeah. a listicle. It has to be a listicle. Yeah. It's yeah. like Megan Fahey stepped on set and dragged her <laughs> pussy all over that beach. <laughs> yeah, it has to it has to be so fanatical it's gross. Yes. That's you how we make ourselves acted? known. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did the job. Yes. Um I am excited to talk about White Lotus because we've sort of not talked about it um, throughout its run. Um, but now I think it's time for us to like finally get into it. And at this point, you know, like if you haven't seen White Lotus, it's probably been ruined for you anyway, because I have not seen a show in forever, really, that just sort of has taken over the zeitgeist in the sense that everyone is talking about it, recapping it, sharing memes from it the minute an episode ends. You know, like even like Game of Thrones, people at least gave, you know, like the pretense of sort of like, we don't want to spoil things unless, you know, there's some big like massacre or something. But um, we're going to get into the popularity of this season of White Lotus and how much we liked it versus season one. And then um, also the Golden Globes are rattling back to life. <laughs> the rickety curiosity shop that is the golden globes has turned on their christmas lights once more when we were thinking about what the other topic was going to be this week i truly feel like i was like sitting on the couch scrolling through my phone and i was like 
wait, they're Golden Globe nominations today? I right. truly forgot that it came back and that they were happening this week. Right. It, well, it's one of these things where there's no... Like, the celebrities who are nominated aren't giving statements about it, which once upon a time would have been, you know, Variety would have been chock-a-block with every single nominee talking about where they were when they heard, etc. But now it's like it almost feels vaguely insulting to get nominated for a Golden Globe. So you have no reaction. I can't tell who's going to show up to the ceremony, which is televised. So it's a very strange moment. Yeah. Um, So we're going to chat about the White Lotus. We're going to chat about the Golden Globes. And then also uh, we are joined by Hunter Dillon, the fantastic breakout star from Wednesday on Netflix, which is, of course, about Wednesday Adams, another addition to the Wednesday Adams canon. And Christina Ricci even makes an appearance in the series, too. Giving it sort of, you know, that um, passing the baton, um, as it were. Yes. Um, two things. One, in talking about this show, people, of course, reference Adams Family Values all the time, the 1993 movie where Joan Cusack has a breakout performance. I feel like on this generation, it is people don't understand that that is a sequel that the 91 Adams Family also exists because people don't remember a lot about that movie in comparison to that one. And in fact, a lot of the big gags in the 93 one are pulled from the first one. Like Wednesday's main antagonist in uh, at the summer camp is a Girl Scout in the 91 version. So I just want to remind people, a lot of funny stuff in the 91 version if they haven't seen it. And also the original Wednesday Adams on television, Carolyn Jones so fabulous and gives an awesome Oscar-nominated performance in a movie called The Bachelor Party from the 50s written by Patty Shayevsky. It's like a two-minute performance. Look it up on YouTube. You will love her. Mm. I um, I really love um, the original Adam Sandler. And it's so, it's so interesting, too, that you brought that up because I really do not think about it often. No, right. Uh, and because, like, also the plot of the first one is like Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester, like, trying to scam them. Yes. And also, like, th- there's a character connected to him. This time it's his pseudo mother figure. It's not uh, his new wife or whatever, but it's the same vibe. Like, she's conniving in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then, meanwhile, there, then there's a new scammer in Adam's Family Values, right. of course. Yes. Uh, and the less said about Adam's Family Reunion, <laughs> the better. Who is Morticia in that one? Daryl Hannah is Morticia. Tim Curry is Gomez. And then there's a bunch of who? (laughs) That Tim Curry would flop. You just hate to hear it. Estelle Harris and Ed Begley Jr. are also in it. God fucking love Estelle Harris. Uh, Uh, Wonderful work in the Toy Story movies, yes. And she passed this year, too. I mean, I feel like a lot of our listeners will remember her from Seinfeld. Right, of course. It takes the skill of a really good actress to sort of, I feel like, to take George Costanza's mother, who's basically just sort of there to, like, screech a lot um, and make her, like, so funny and layered. But Estelle Harris was just a great actress. Speaking of Seinfeld, a lot of people have been unearthing Jennifer Coolidge's uh, uh, role on that show, which I believe is her one of her first credits or something. She's um, Jerry's massage therapist. Correct. Yes. It's her, it is literally Jennifer Coolidge's first TV credit. So look that up when you get a chance. She looks very different. Yes. She, she, she hasn't, <laughs> shall we say, blossomed into the Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> she's giving act one. She's all that. Yes. Let's right. just put it there. <laughs> uh, she's not yet the blonde bombshell that we were introduced to in uh, 
Legally Blonde. Yes, of course, um, of course. But we've got a lot to say about Jennifer Coolidge and the gays. Um, so we will be right back with more Keep It. Cricket and Duolingo's newest podcast, Radio Lingo, investigates all of the ways that languages shape our world and how the world shapes our language. Each episode explores a different way language plays a role in our life, from swearing to subtitles and everything in between. Listen to the first four episodes right now and subscribe to Radio Lingo wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. The holiday season is upon us. The greatest gift of all has been the John Wick audition that is Jennifer Coolidge in the White Lotus finale. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we think will become of these poor rich people who were our favorites and doesn't match up against season one? Well, first of all, I just want to say... I did not anticipate that every single second of the finale would feel thrilling. I wa watching it, I had my hands on my cheeks because e there were even times when like, for instance, when Will Sharp and Theo James are fighting in the water, I knew that that was a red herring. I knew that who somebody wasn't going to die there. And that wasn't going to be the body in the first episode that we were trying to solve the murder. But about. still, yes, but so, I was like, what? like they kept the suspense going. Like literally everybody, everything fell into place. And also as far as I was concerned, everybody was wrong about who died. So, and uh, on this show, I think maybe a couple people guessed that like the nefarious old gay guy who was, you know, bewitching Jennifer Coolidge was going to die. But th that's sort of a minor part of the finale. No one really suspected that she was going to die, I don't think. Yeah. And what's weird is that, uh, there have been so many theories that came out after everyone was like, well, it was obvious that she was going to die. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, not, there wasn't <laughs> an, a prevailing sense that she was going to die. But I do love that the story manages to fit that she would. You know, yes. I feel like mm -hmm. it's it very much, you know, like tragic, you know, um, heroine um, was set up, you know, from the beginning. You know, um, I think if you go back and look, I went back and looked at the premiere uh, and it, you can sort of now see the telegraphing of like, she's dying, you know? So I think, I think it's a good send off for her character, to be honest, who deserved a little, um, karmic retribution, um, for what she did in the first season. And you're talking about what she did to, uh, Natasha Rathwell, who I have, I have the distinct feeling is coming back. I hope so. I mean, what's so exciting is that she came back in season two. Uh, and I figured someone would come back in season two, you know, because a bit of a continuation. Uh, and allegedly, Connie Britton was supposed to be back in season two as well, but her um, schedule didn't allow it. Uh, so now it's nice to see this extended universe. I'm hoping that in season three, um, we see someone else again and we continue their story. I mean, I don't need to see Daphne and Harper and them again. I know that everyone is going psycho for Megan Fahey, and I'm going... I loved her in it, um, but now I want her to do something else. Right? You know? I don't. I Definitely. like. I don't think that those characters need to come back. But I will say that Mike White surprised me because when season two started of The White Lotus, I was sort of exhausted by Tanya's story. No, and there were even moments 
in her story well before it was revealed she would be hanging out with this weird coterie of gay guys where I thought, oh, this is expired. We don't even need to see this anymore. The other storylines are giving so much more sexual intrigue and weird, you know, creepiness, whatever. And then her storyline turned out to be the the, um, creepiest of all. I have a question, though. So the gay guy who I guess was masterminding her being murdered, if he Mm. was, in fact, plotting to murder her, why was he so fucking nefarious with her the entire time? And rather obviously, like he literally says to her, I'd die for beauty, wouldn't you? It's like, bitch, you, are you fucking Vincent Price? What? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you're going to kill her? Yeah. Listen, I feel like the gay, the gay scheme did not make sense. Yeah. Uh, and which is why I also, but I also feel like I, the reason I love cinema uh, and, you know, television and storytelling is sort of like, sometimes loose ends can be fun and uh, yeah. just sort of like add to the air of the mystery. I actually feel like I prefer like all of this not being wrapped up um, and starting season three and like we're just like completely gone from Tanya's story than sort of like Greg reappearing and us finding out like if he really was scheming with these gays to do stuff, you know? Like right. I feel like it, answering it too much would sort of ruin it and like I think Mike White knows that. Like, you know, he's he came from the world of soap opera where, one, um, threads get dropped all the time. Uh, sure. And you just sort of move on from it. Uh, and I feel like David Lynch does that, too, because he's also, you know, a fan of um, soap operas. You know, that's it's, it's sort of like, that's why I feel like the Lynchian storytelling is sort of like things appear and then they sort of don't make sense or then they don't get answered just because people are used to drop threads in things. I feel like, weirdly, my favorite creators are sort of like that. Him, Lynch, Amorabar, Todd Haynes, anyway. I um, love that he um, wrote in specific ambiguity in that we don't know whether Megan Fahey and Will Sharp, sorry that I actually don't know the characters' names, but I, I, the, these are what I've retained, that we don't really know <laughs> if they have an affair or, not, or if they hook up after Will Sharp tells Megan mm-hmm. Fahey he believes that uh, their significant others have hooked up or something occurred, and then they disappear off to an island and we don't see what happens. That, to me, is awesome. I think mm-hmm. that is a very rare thing to occur in a TV show where it's just written like, well, what do you think happened? And then what's more important is what occurs afterwards, which is, okay, now Will Sharp and Aubrey Plaza have a more contented relationship. And then I guess Megan Fahey and Theo James go on with their sort of arrangement. I will say, I feel like one reason that gay men in particular on Twitter are obsessed with Megan Fahey is that the arrangement in that relationship feels like gay men. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, watching this, you know, uh, and seeing so many gay men, like, obsessed with this sort of um, couple, and then, uh, and Mike White being gay himself, obviously, like, had to have known this, you know, like, the, the end that you get to with all the couples is like, how much does that mirror so many of our friends who are married or in open relationships or whatever? And I feel like, you know, that was the four of them sorting out what works for them. Right. And like, you know, um, Aubrey Plaza, um, you know, um, she got, the, she and her man got to the end that worked for them and they're better off for it, you know? Almost everybody on the show is better off than what they came in with. Um uh, I, I think the thing that is really entrancing about this show is almost everybody in the cast, they're people for whom 
everything usually works out. Like life is safe for them. And now they're going to a place where it's allegedly even safer. So there's an expectation that their perfect lives are somehow about to improve. And the Mm -hmm. fact that they realize that like, you can't relax in perfection, that things are stewing always is Mm -hmm. I think a very human and, um, cool thing i love that they explore on this show i just i i i I just can't get over how successful it all was like even down Mm. to i I think what you were talking about before with like people immediately spoiling it on uh twitter and instagram because he made the finale so about what happens to um jennifer coolidge tanya particularly so memeable you could hardly not put it online you know what i mean like the way she falls off that boat i was like a mr bill sketch Um, and I mean, listen, I, I already mentioned, you know, like the, his affinity for, um, soap operas, which, you know, is, um, you know, which I, which is all, I'm always going to bring up Pasadena on Fox and be sad that that fucking show was canceled. Dana Delaney was doing the damn thing and we deserved, <laughs> always more than 13, we deserved more than 13 episodes of it. But, you know, I feel like he is so good at distilling the pop culture that he enjoys and putting it into his work, um, which is, you know, a thing I've always admired in the artists I love. Because um, I would say that Mike White, one, the soap opera t- sort storytelling works in the way that it lures you in episode to episode because, you know, there's, there's seven episodes of this. It starts out big um, and then it ends big. But, you know, the middle is sort of people hashing out their problems with each other, having the same arguments, which is sort of, you know, like what you get on fucking Days of Our Lives or something. And when people watch this, there's this whole idea that, you know, sometimes people would be like, oh, nothing happened on this week of White Lotus, you know? But I'm like, everything happened to the characters. You know? Like, there's so much happening. And not just those, he got so much from reality TV. Because I don't know if you read that interview where he talked about... um, in season one and season two, like the dramatic moments of where it's like cutting to the beach or cutting to these masts and like those big like heads, like the porcelain one that finally broke in the finale. Um, He said he totally just cribbed that from Survivor. Uh, Whenever there's a (laughs) tense moment on the show, like they cut to the ocean, they cut to like snakes, like crawling through the mud or something, or they cut to like the tribal masts and things. And I think it's awesome that he just took that from his favorite show and put it into his show, and it created the same sort of tension. Totally. I mean, in a way, what he's doing is being a gay version of someone like a Tarantino, who every every time mm. he does anything, it's an homage of some sort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or he's like pulling references, sometimes the original actors. Um, uh-huh. but, you know, but you can see that he, or sometimes he's downright remaking other movies. But, you know, he's obsessed with whatever, Westerns or uh, exploitation movies or whatever. And then you know, sort of rejiggering them and reinvigorating them for a new audience. And here, it feels like you really can see, you know, even just in his appreciation for actresses, period. Like the way he's like, it has to be Jennifer Coolidge or we're not doing this all together, you know, uh-huh. and and giving us something uh, we wouldn't necessarily expect from these people. It really feels like a gay Tarantino in that way or something. But I know also... You, yeah, right, yes. But, but I mean, because <laughs> we're better at those references, right? And I mean... There's even there's people didn't talk that much about it after the one week, but like the the scene where um and it added to the foreboding too, like Aubrey Plaza when she goes to into the city with Megan Fahey, um and those men surround her, yes, um, oh, right, and then they just all vanish, and that was uh, 
shot-by-shot um, scene from the 60s Italian film La Ventura, um, which is a great reference if you get it. If not, you're watching it. For the majority of the audience, you're watching it, and this weird, creepy, foreboding scene happens, and then it just disappears. Right. And, and it's very – it's cohesive. And that's also yeah. why I think um, the benefit of doing a show where it's, it's all character-driven and it's not super um, – I don't want to say plot obsessed, but the, the way people say, oh, nothing happened in this episode, meaning there weren't plot jumps that, you know, you know, moved us from one place to another necessarily. Inserting scenes like that really move you. Mad Men was good at that, too. I was you know, really about just, to bring up Mad Men because you know, that show week to week was character driven. Not a lot would happen. But what Matthew Weiner always understood, though, too, is like you have the one big pop in an episode. You know, yeah. like it can be all characters, but then you have know, someone like getting run over by a lawnmower, you know, or like someone gets shot, you know, or something like that will help people remember, you know, the overall episode. But you're really just sort of digging into characters and stuff. Yeah, I really uh, love this show. I, like, I, know, I really think too. it's fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm just really happy for Mike White having such a successful show like this. And I hope it brings back, you know, like the adult television you know and i'm like i'm not adult television not in the sense of you know we need breaking bad and all these gritty you know like uh male anti-hero things i'm like shows like this um which feel you know like the desperate housewives or something era but you know like we're finally getting those kind of shows prestige you know yes. and this is giving the same thing that big little lies was giving but you know it's better than big little lies um not that I didn't love that, but um, oh, I love that too. But you yeah, know, better uh, than Big Little Lies season two. Absolutely. Oh, certainly, certainly, yes. Um, no, there's a lot of sophisticated things going on in this show that I'm uh, grateful everybody is obsessed with. It's it, it's weird that a show like this. I feel like you know, uh, not that Mad Men was unpopular. Of course, it was, but uh, that th- everybody sort of rallies around. Uh, I want to also give a shout out to like. Not every role turned out to be ultimately that juicy, and yet I thought the actors themselves were great. I thought Michael Imperioli was great in a storyline. Yes. I was like, I don't, I, I don't really need to keep watching this. Like, is there anything in this for me? Uh, F. Marie Abraham, who, by the way, <clears throat> remains one of the best, best actor wins ever. Like, why are we sitting around shocked? Like, oh yeah, he's really delivering right now. Um, he and Judd Hirsch, by the way, occupy a very similar space in my mind, and they both give kind of <clears throat> similar performances uh, this season: Judd Hirsch and the Fablemans, and F. Marie Abraham on this show. I feel like it's our fault that culture doesn't talk about Amadeus enough. Because I'm like, do we talk about Amadeus enough on this show? It's probably, I think it's our fault. Yes. I think it's it's Ira and Lewis's fault. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, I wonderful say, Cynthia Nixon performance. Yes. I will say, and maybe this also happened for you. Uh, maybe it was like a Midwestern thing. Do you remember like middle school going to Blockbuster and feeling like there were like 50 copies of Amadeus? I don't know about that. I'm trying to think. I felt like Amadeus, there I was certainly always Amadeus it. there. The band teacher put on Amadeus for us, and we watched it over a series of, what, 11 classes? Because, you know, it was the director's cut or whatever, too. Which, by the way, is not as... I don't like the director's cut as much as I like the normal size mm-hmm. version of Amadeus. I mean, I think we talked about the best films, like, last week with the sight and sound list, but a film that I feel like has dropped off that and sort of like public consciousness is Amadeus. I feel like people used to constantly talk about that film mm-hmm. when we were younger, like only like 10 or 15 years removed from like it's um, Academy Award wins. Yeah. And one of the few movies ever to have multiple 
best actor noms in it, you know, a mutiny on the bounty or uh, Amadeus. They don't, don't occur that often. The dresser with Albert Finney and Tom Courtney. It's another one. Great movie. Yeah. Oh, I was going to bring up um, just lastly, like what we think in terms of season one. Oh yes. If I had to pick one, I would say two because I thought the, the, sexual deviousness of this season was very well realized and mm-hmm. a- added a fun necessarily sexy dimension to the show so i feel like with it brought everything the first season did plus that so i have to say two is my favorite i would have to say like with the finale now two is my favorite just because yes it added a bit more camp uh it went full um you know um it went full um women's picture yeah, you know, <laughs> okay, like, George Cukor uh, is in the house. Yes, George Cukor would be um, orgasming during yeah. that finale. Are you kidding me? Uh, Tennessee Williams would be like, "Wait, we can do that with um, <laughs> with leading ladies now." Geraldine uh, Page, think- get on the phone. Yes, <laughs> uh, I feel like that's just icon. I don't know. It's I, this too. I was just watching the actors on actors between. Um, Patricia Arquette and Julia Roberts. And like, she was asking Julia about like, when she was the highest paid actress in Hollywood, like making 20 million, she was just like, well, you know, I'm just thinking about people, you know, like um, Carrie Fisher, like a Goldie Hawn, like women who'd come before me, you know, like Barbara Streisand. I don't think she named Carrie Fisher. Uh, I'm giving her too much credit. Uh, I think she just said Barbara Streisand, but like people who came before her and it's like, you know, all this groundwork has been laid for, and Jennifer Coolidge to do all this fucking amazing stuff. Uh, and it's nice to see her in a show like this that I feel like has a better grasp of telling stories about older women and like how gay men interact with them. It almost feels sort of like a direct response to how people um, treat the actresses in Ryan Murphy productions. You know? Yeah. Like right, online, right. standing, these gays standing a woman to death. <laughs> that's literally, yes. that's literally she what the series was. Yes. She, <laughs> she took a sw- she took a swim in Mother Lake and she drowned. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, so maybe just maybe we don't want our pop stars in Mother Lake. Right. No. Particularly if they're going <laughs> to hit their head right before they hit the water. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the show's fantastic, and I'm glad that people are enjoying it, and I can't wait for the next season. Yes. Also, one more um, thing I want to point out that bugged me. Even though the gay men had so much kind of contempt for her that they, you know, didn't expect her to escape or get get them or whatever. Would the hitman really just throw out his bag of weapons right in front of her and then walk away and then let her walk towards the bathroom right next to where the gun and tape and rope are? That's my other thing, too, because I'm just like, you sort of have to, like, go with Megan Fahey's advice of, um, you know, have to know everything about someone to love them. Because <laughs> I, the, it makes no sense, and you just sort of got to ignore it. Because I'm like, but then why were they recording her having sex? Because there was clearly that red light last week yeah. which was being recorded. And if the plot was to kill her, then why did they need to take her all the way back and dock her back by the White Lotus? You know, was it like, why have to give her this great weekend? You know, it was just sort of... It, I was like, I, I can't think about it. You know? Right. Because, like, was it just maybe, to blackmail her? Maybe these gay men aren't that good at murdering, you know? Yeah. Which, but by the way, you could sell it, a, show, a show based just on that. I I'd have love to, to think watch it was murder based on the one DDA, like, deciding to, like, whichever one, like, the the real, like, um, Italian Luca looking one um, to um, 
abandon. Um, remember, he stayed there. He was like, I'm not going to yes. get on the boat. And then right. shout out to shout out to the one gay who survived and jumped into the water and yes. clearly lived because no one found his body. Yes. I also love the scene where she was up on the roof of the boat trying to get through to the one guy not at the, at the dinner there. That was like a unexpected comic moment. That was really nice. Yeah, so are you gay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really fun show. So, also, uh, what did you what did you make of uh, Haley Lou Richardson, a.k.a. Portia, saying that some of the clothes that she wore in this show, which have been much derided from Instagram, she admitted a lot of them came from her own closet. Haley, girl, you, sometimes you just, it's better left unsaid. Don't let us know. That costume designer hit up Haley and was like, you better clear my name, bitch. <laughs> 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 this ain't going on me. <laughs> I'm trying to get booked. <laughs> What she was wearing on the on this show was giving TJ Maxx version of what Carrie wears in Sex and the City 2 when they go to the desert. Yeah. You know. Also, unfortunately, like I'll be turned out to be like kind of a loser, but I think he would make a good boyfriend. I ended up liking that character. I know we yeah. were supposed to be like, oh, he's, you know, a cop. He's trying to say whatever women. the he's thing like is. the yeah. worst version of male <laughs> feminist, but like I think I honestly they seem like two idiots who are good for each other. Yeah, right. Idiots have to end up with somebody. It can't be a smart person. They'll get sick of it. I will say that this season had a bit more hope. Like even though people's lives got fucked up, people came out with like sort of like some happier resolutions on this trip than I would say the first season, which was a bit more grim. Yes. Yes, definitely. I think that's a part of what people like a little bit more. There is a little bit a beam of optimism coming off this season. Yeah. Well, lastly, I guess this reminds me of like, I mean, we brought up Seinfeld already. Like, you remember the Seinfeld episode where Jerry is dating um, the 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 uh, lie detector, per, the polygraph yes. person. And then he won't admit that he likes Melrose Place. But then he starts like <laughs> yelling about the storylines while he's taking the polygraph. Right. I feel like Watch it. People liked season one of this. People enjoy, but season two got so big and with so many like viewing parties, like for the finale. I truly feel like season three of this show is going to be like a phenomenon. Yeah, I hope so too. And I was really heartened by what Mike White said in the featurette after the finale when he was talking about it, it, it's going to deal with death in a strange way. I feel like we're going to get into some mysticism, which mm. I, I think is appropriate for the people on the yeah. show. And a takedown, you know, sort of like. The people obsessed with loss in translation, for instance. Yes, right. Yeah. White friends. men obsessed with Asian culture. Uh, yes. It's your time. <laughs> You're on notice. Anyway, we love this show. And um, I don't know. I, I want to talk to Mike White about it. We need yeah, to get on here. Yeah. yeah, we need to talk about this show and Survivor. I mean, of course, honestly. Of um, which, as we're wrapping this up, unfortunately, the finale is this week. What a flop season. Oh, is it? Yeah. The season, the season sucks. And last week was sort of like the first really interesting tribal. And it's like, well, it's the penultimate. It's just a bunch of, it's sort of like people who are just sort of like afraid to, it's going to be big brothery. They're afraid to make moves, basically. Mm. Oh, I feel like Survivor is the opposite of Big Brother in that every fifth season it's bad. Whereas mm. Big Brother, every fifth season it's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right when we're back uh hunter doing joins us to talk about wednesday keep it is brought to you by hinge hinge is the dating app designed 
to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with Glad, so they are by the people for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by, I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at, and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Keep It is brought to you by Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. I was there. I remember. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children, like Dance Moms, the infamous Lifetime Network show where the studio owners screamed at children and their moms over several seasons. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Mm, they recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Well, we know that someone created the beast known as Jojo Siwa. <laughs> you think we see the, the, the lab workings that created Jojo Siwa? <laughs> yeah. One pigtail, two pigtails. <laughs> Uh, and Chemical X. (laughs) (laughs) Abby's biggest misstep actually wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Well, follow The Big Flop wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Our guest today has been stealing scenes and also breaking the fuck out. He is the star of this show as Tyler on Netflix's Wednesday, uh, the latest addition to the Adams Family canon. You also probably know him from Your Honor with uh, Brian Cranston. Uh, but on Wednesday, he's a bumbling barista with a sinister secret, just like most bumbling baristas. I believe they're all concealing something from us. <laughs> and he gives one of the year's most memorable performances on the show. Welcome to Keep It, my friend who I sometimes just run into at Akbar, Hunter Duhan. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, that's the best introduction. And I'm so excited to be here. This show helped me get through seven months in Romania. Oh, oh my God. God. 
Oh, I is that where you that shot not the it? Bone chilling thing you could hear. Wow. Is that where you <laughs> shot it, or are you just like you just love Eastern Europe? I love Eastern Europe. <laughs> it is my happy place. No, wait, that's that's where we shot it randomly. Um, everyone's like, "Oh, is it because the castles and like the look of it?" I'm like, "Yeah, they shot two days outside of a castle." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, I, don't th- I can't think of a single other thing that's ever been filmed in Romania. Were you blown away to realize you'd be off to Bucharest or wherever you shot this? Oh, yeah. We were staying in Bucharest and then, like, driving an hour to the Bufta Studios. Um, yeah, when I did the original audition, it said Canada. And then all of a sudden we were, like, doing the contract. <laughs> it said Bucharest, Romania. And we are like, whoa. But I was uh, not in a position to change my mind. <laughs> Now, I just love when things get shot in random places. Um, I think I remember when Regina Hall was on um, here with us, and she was talking about the reboot of The Honeymooners. And she was like, yeah, we shot that in Ireland. Why? <laughs> no way, reason. It's, a, it's an all-black cast, by the way. <laughs> up in Ireland. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, like, before we get into the show, I'm unfortunately curious about this. Did uh, did you discover anything of Romanian culture? Did you meet Romanian people? What happened there? I assumed you were just kind of stuck with your cast, given that it was a COVID situation. Yeah, I mean, when we were there, the first four months, Bucharest had, like, a 9 p.m. curfew because of COVID. So it wasn't, like, a bustling nightlife. Um but it did, like, force us to get really close as a cast, which was nice. We were just, like, go to dinner at 6 and then go drink in someone's hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> kind of nice. A constant uh, high school drama cast party going on. Yeah. I was kind of splitting my time to, like, kind of playing double agent because the, everything they shot at Nevermore, I was never involved in. So I was, like, half the time hanging out with the teens and then the other half hanging out with, like, the guy that played my dad and the therapist and the mayor. <laughs> Um, one thing I really enjoy about the show, too, is just, like, we're back in the Adams Family universe. Was the Adams Family something you were familiar with before you have done this? Yeah, I was familiar with the 90s movies. Okay. Yeah, so to, I mean, then to have, like, Christina join our show felt like we got, you know, not the original Wednesday, but, like, my Wednesday's stamp of approval on it. Yeah. Um, there's so many... Adam's family things. By the way, yeah. when I went to look back on this, I forgot there was like there's this weird off-brand '90s Adam's family show um, that was shot in Canada. Uh, I think it aired like one season, but it was like 65 episodes. So that's another thing that was on constantly in our childhood. I feel like the Adam's family was always there, and it's nice to sort of have it back. Yeah, wait, wait, there was a 65-episode season of The Addams Family in the 90s? It aired on YTV. It aired from, like, 98 to 99. The cast is people you don't know. I have some yeah. memory of Daryl <laughs> Hannah playing Morticia at some point. Like, I think there's, like, little, like, and there's animated versions, etc. Like, we s- secretly have myriad Addams Family variations. Um, yeah, well, I'm excited this one's back, and hopefully in, like, 10 years people aren't like, then there's this weird show they shot in Romania. (laughs) (laughs) The Romanian Adams family. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. Obviously your dynamic with Jenna Ortega is um, an exciting part of the show. Uh, We have mostly gotten to know her or I have through the last scream movie. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us about working with 
her as an actor? And uh, did she get to discover the character of Wednesday alongside you? Um, I mean, I can't claim any of her discovery. She is so phenomenal in this. Um, yeah, I, I met her here in Burbank. We like went to coffee before we flew over to Romania. And I mean, I just can't say enough like nice things about her. She's so cool. She was like 18 when we started shooting and just smarter and more talented than anyone. And uh, like, I always talk about like her dance scene in episode four, because there was a choreographer and she kind of kept avoiding her. And then it kind of got to the day to shoot it. And then Jenna did her amazing dance that she choreographed herself. And in the script, it was like, Wednesday starts to dance. Tyler joins her. Everybody does the Wednesday. But I like, I like looked at Tim for help. Like, oh my God, all I can do is stand here and gawk at her. And he's like, no, no, no. I think people will relate to that. I found like the, the dance stuff was really fun because I feel like, first of all, the show's sort of everywhere in the sense that before I even watched it, I felt like I'd seen most of the show on TikTok, uh, <laughs> which, which is great for a show now, but it's just, it's weird to have that sensation. Uh, is it weird to have that sensation of, um, you've made a show and, you know, there's the traditional way, I guess, you know, like another show you've been on, like Your Honor, where, you know, like people are watching that week to week, like, you know, they regularly consume TV. But this, I guess you find out people are consuming your show by people making memes and videos of you. Yeah, it is really strange. And the fans are like amazing. They got on it so quickly. And I mean, was it spoiled for you on TikTok, the ending? It wasn't actually. Oh, okay. it, was, it was like, I mean, and even if it was, there's, there's so much going on in the show. I want to let yeah. people know there's so much going on that it's sort of really hard to be super spoiled for it because there's always something else happening. That's true. Like even my husband Fielder was like, I mean, "You didn't tell me about the evil pilgrim storyline." I was like, there, were, "There was too much for me to try to explain before you watched it." <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, the fans are awesome, and like on TikTok, they're also like ruthless and hilarious. I just like reposted a bunch of funny ones that of people making fun of me, like, cause everyone's doing the Wednesday dance challenge. And then some girl was like, but did anybody see Tyler? And she just like stands there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to, now that you've brought him up, your husband is one of the few people I've probably known him like maybe like 12 years now or something. Like he's just like a nice, a, a very nice LA gay guy. And he's one of the few people who's ever like educated me about things I already thought I loved. Like he's somebody who would, would tell me something about like the prime of Miss Jean Brody I didn't know. Or um, I remember one time we were at some r restaurant or something and he pointed at a chair and he goes, do you know what that's a reference to? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, it's uh, the Montgomery Clift movie Red River. Anyway, I just want you to know that nobody ever tells me about these things. I usually know them myself. So I'm actually, I, I remember my ego shrinking. Like, I thought I was the Lewis in this situation, but no, Fielder was, actually. Is he a big movie dork? Are you too? Yeah, he's like kind of a, a big everything dork. He's always reading and watching stuff, and he's so smart. Like, we we'll go to, like, trivia nights, and I just kind of sit there and smile and, like, watch him win the game for us. <laughs> Where did you guys meet? <laughs> Tinder. Oh, chic. Yeah, real oh. chic. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something fantastic about you being so young, married, a breakout star on a Netflix show, uh, and you met on Tinder. During, was it during the pandemic then? No, we pre -pandemic? met. pre-pandemic? Yeah, we met in like 2015. Um, okay. And then we got engaged during the pandemic. So 
Uh, the pandemic was great for me because I had been off shooting Your Honor for six months in New Orleans. So I like came back and all of a sudden we got to like spend time together again. And uh, we had so many friends that either broke up or got married during the pandemic or had a baby. Um, by the way, it occurs to me that Tim Burton is somebody that everybody is familiar with. And we have an aesthetic that we associate with him. And that's the same aesthetic that Wednesday is. But I personally would not say I have a grasp on the Tim Burton personality. Um, I like the, the piece of information that I store about him is that he and Helena Bonham Carter were together for all these years and then lived in separate houses, which I consider the most genius arrangement and progressive union that we've had to date. It, in a way, it upsets me that that's still not going on. But what can you tell us about Tim Burton that I guess we don't know? Because the fact is, we don't know much about him personally. Yeah, I didn't either. I was kind of like intimidated to meet him, especially, I mean, just because of who he is as a filmmaker and also just of his aesthetic. I was like, what, what is this guy going to be like? But he's so sweet. I have to like watch myself. The first couple of interviews, I was like, he's like normal. And then I realized like, that's probably like his least favorite word of all time. Um, (laughs) But he's no, he's awesome. He like never stops moving. He's always walking around. He's like, yeah, good, 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 good. Just uh, do it again real quick. Uh, And he's like real fun to work with. Cause he doesn't like nitpick us like as actors. Um, and one night at dinner, he, we were at this, like, Mexican restaurant in Romania. And he said he just chooses actors that he trusts and kind of just lets lets it go from that point on, which I was just like, okay, I'm going to be filled with so much confidence for the rest of the season. Is there anything maybe from, like, his directing style or even just a conversation with him that just sort of struck you as, like, something you want to remember every time you go into a new project? Um, one day he came up to me and like kind of put his hand on my back and told me I was in good company in a long line of sensitive monsters. (laughs) Wow. I will will hold on to that forever. (laughs) What a, what a, (laughs) that's a shocking and lovely thing to say, I think. Yeah. That's my new Instagram uh, bio. Sensitive monsters. He's talking about, you know, a long line of sensitive monsters like Christoph Waltz and Big Eyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Wow, which is a Tim Burton movie. Wow, I completely forgot it was. I know, that's a really (laughs) random one. It, like, completely sticks out in his filmography. Because most of the time, Tim Burton picks something, and you almost think, didn't he do that before? Like, it's so close to his pre-existing aesthetic. Adam's family. You know? Yeah. Like, when he did Alice in Wonderland, you're like, this is the first time you've handled this? Are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I always remember big eyes but that he did it because he has big eyes and he has big fish so he's just having a moment where he was like <laughs> big and then i'm like he also did the bfg right did or he? did someone else did do he? the bfg i don't think he did no mm, well there we go tim burton's a mystery <laughs> okay <very laughs> well. there's so many movies he didn't direct <laughs> Tell us about Brian Cranston, who, as far as I interviewed him once at like, uh, I think TCA's probably 10 years ago, one of the most casually, extremely smart and um, seemingly caring people you can ever interview. And and also like just a great memory. Like he could go back in his career and revisit almost anything. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, his book is amazing. Um, no, I love Brian. He's like the nicest guy in the world. He did get me killed off the first season of our show. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, he's amazing. He, I mean, he officiated uh, Fielder and I's wedding. He is like the biggest sweetheart and working with him was like a dream come true for me. I was such a fan of his and 
I also just like learned a lot, like how to be on set. Like he will, he's constantly joking around and then just like will immediately drop in. So there was kind of like no time to like be precious about it or like really get into the mood, which I've carried with me and like tried to do that on Wednesday too, because it's just such a better way to like go about being on set with people for seven months is like, I mean, the crew doesn't give a shit about your process. It's like, you know, do your homework at home, then come have like a good time on set. I've heard that about uh, Meryl Streep, too, on um, the set of, I believe, Heartburn. Yeah, that's the one where she's in it with Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara said you'd be just talking with her about anything. Like, she'd be joking with you. And then someone would be like, okay, we're ready to go. And then, like, you know, the Meryl would appear and yeah. uh, turn out whatever, you know, amazing scene she had, to. Brian directed the finale of Your Honor. And, like, he was, you know, spoiler alert, but it's been two years. Uh, he was, like, cradling me, like, after I'd been, like, shot and he was like, okay, yeah, and just the camera's going to come in here, it's going to spring around, and then you're going to zoom in right onto me. Okay, action, and then he started crying. <laughs> it was one of the most amazing things we've ever seen. I love how that's both pro- professional and deranged. Like, what is wrong with the person <laughs> that they could do that? <laughs> uh, no, it's interesting to think about him being tapped in so much, because, you know, Brian Cranston of Your Honor and Breaking Bad is such a different... Brian Cranston than you know Lewis and I grew up with uh, yeah. with him on Malcolm in the Middle. So like, what did you have any sense of his like other than like him joking around on set with him? Did you have a sense of like his comic sensibilities? You know, like what what like sort of he finds funny and like is he more interested in just sort of being like this serious actor now? No, I mean he doesn't take himself seriously at all. I mean, if he takes like the work seriously. I'm- I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he is not listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's hilarious. No. Um, yeah, no, I didn't know. I didn't really know Malcolm in the middle. I kind of only knew him as Breaking Bad Brian Cranston. And then before our, like, final, like, network test, I tried to, like, learn as much about him as possible. and tried to consume everything, and I read his book, and then... They flew us out to New York, so he was doing network on Broadway at the time. And so I saw it the day before the test, which was a huge mistake, because then I was, like, you know, quite literally looking up to the man. And then the next morning, <laughs> I had to go act with him and for, like, the biggest opportunity I'd ever had. But, um, you know, it worked out. <laughs> um, I also want to go back to Wednesday for a second. Yeah. Your, I guess, fame has skyrocketed over the series of, like, two and a half weeks or something, it feels like before this show aired, you must have been bracing yourself knowing that when something lands on Netflix, it's in every sector of the universe and probably other universes at this point. I'm looking at just like the amount of responses you're getting just like on on your Instagram alone. I mean, are you prepared for this level of just people shouting at you? Uh, No. I was not <laughs> like, I mean, cause we knew it like would have the Netflix effect, but people kept saying that to me, like when your honor would happen, they like happened. They were like, uh, you know, you're not, your life's about to change. And then it, it really didn't that much day to day. And then, so I didn't really believe them this time around. And then also it was so much more popular than we expected the show to be. Um, but it's, it's been really, strange to like get recognized i mean basically everywhere we go now and like and then yeah on instagram and stuff it's 
it's crazy. I mean, the weirdest part is like getting used to stuff being taken out of context, like <laughs> doing like interviews. And I'm like, I mentioned that my high school girlfriend, Grace had given me a box, like a DVD of Will and Grace for like a present. And then it was like, about like, you know, discovering gay culture. And then the headlines that come out are like, Will and Grace turn Hunter Doohan gay. <laughs> Chemically, that's what occurs. You lay mm-hmm. eyes on Sean Hayes and then you become him. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit too just about your character, you know, not to spoil too much, but your character in Wednesday. And then, you know, your character in Your Honor too. I mean, like that, that series literally starts with you, you know, the hit and run, um, and it becomes so intense. Um, what sort of draws you to these intense characters, or is it just something that sort of happened by happenstance? Was this the kind of like acting you were doing, um, you know, pre um, booking um, these roles? Uh, it was the kind of acting I was trying to do, but <laughs> uh, I mean, like when people always ask, like you know, I feel like that's a very like generous question to ask me. It's like, what drew you to it? It's like, oh, that was uh, one of the self tapes I got. And I was like, please, please someone watch this and give me a job. Um, (laughs) But it it is weird that there, there are a few like similarities in the characters between your honor and Wednesday, just of like, like stupid things like the, the, both of the dads being like a, a sheriff and a judge and my mom's dead in both of them. And they're kind of like intense characters, I guess. Um, I, I don't know what really like has drawn me to it. I guess like Brian, I have some demons in me that allow me to do these roles. I was going to say, you do have, it is like a beguiling quality about you though, because like literally looking at you, I'm like, Oh, this person, you know, is quote unquote soft. Like, you know, could, couldn't hurt a fly or whatever. Like, you know, we used to have actors like Anthony Perkins who did this sort of thing. You know what yeah. I mean? And, uh, uh, and then, of course, you come out with this whole other side. I mean, it must be a pleasure in some ways to be able to shock people. Yeah, Wednesday was really fun. I mean, I kept saying it should feel like, you know, just stereotypical YA teenage boyfriend for seven episodes. And then so we can have, like, a really hard flip in episode eight. Um, and it, it was really fun to play and I, I'm excited for season two to kind of like start off in that place. Is that filming soon? Or are you already in the midst of it yet? Uh, I am, well, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm waiting on the official call, so, but. It would be mind boggling if they didn't renew it. Isn't this like the most popular yeah. show in the history? I, I read some Netflix statistics where it's like one in two uh, citizens of the universe have watched the show or something. Yeah. Our first week we, we beat the like single week streaming numbers of like the four season of stranger things. It was insane. So I feel like it's a a bit annoying to be like, I don't know if season two is going. I mean, I feel like everyone is either watching Wednesday or watching Dahmer and I can't wait for season two of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he finally but, meets the woman of his dreams. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the problem um, was he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so what's interesting, I want to go back to a thing that Lewis was talking about too, about um your sort of your husband Fielder sort of knowing so many things, you know, and being great at trivia. But I feel like you what kind of pop culture like what what section of trivia are you good at? Um, and like what pop culture things like sort of like 
are the most that interest you? You know, like what are you consuming when you're not um, in Romania or while you're in Romania um, to take your mind off of, um, you know, acting? Uh, you know, it is pop culture. And, you know, I say that as like with the two like pop culture gods here. Um, but in Romania, I kind of, I got into drag race for the first time. That was that another like life-saving thing. Um, just to like binge 14 seasons of drag race in between acting like a monster on set. Um, I'm, oh my God, my like stupid gay brain can only think of like white Lotus right now. Uh, <laughs> That's what we're discussing this episode too. It's on my okay. mind also, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been a huge, like more of like a TV uh, fanatic than movies, I think. I guess because I was just kind of like what I was exposed to like growing up in Arkansas. I just wasn't like, didn't have a big like, film education, but I got like super into, you know, you know, a bunch of network TV and I, like, I was obsessed with everything Shonda Rhimes did for ever. And then, you know, got into Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and yeah, just kind of binge watched kind of all the big shows. Uh, mysteriously, some of that is actually a blind spot to me. Like there was a time I've seen all of season maybe two and three of Grey's Anatomy, um, but it, in a way I'm like lying Random. to say I know Shonda that well. Um, I'd like in a, in a way to me like Tr Knight is still on Grey's Anatomy. Not true, Lewis. <laughs> nope. <laughs> there are two people from the original cast still on that show, Lewis. and it's not Justin it Chambers. Oh, and oh, it's not even uh, Ellen Pompeo anymore. Or at this moment, it is. No, but. it's the chief. It's the chief of Bailey. That's oh it. yes, Shonda that's it. Wilson. Yes, that's right. Got yeah, it. black people keep a job. Okay, <laughs> let me tell you, the message is clear. Yes. <laughs> uh, Hunter, thank you so much for being here. Uh, your uh, continued ascent will be thrilling for us to watch, and a little horrifying because, again, Netflix super fans are bone chilling. So look out for that. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you for the warning. <laughs> I hope they make weird TikToks of us now. You know. We do. We put ourselves on tape every. It's it's like a self tape every week, and yet nobody <laughs> takes this bait. Yeah. All right. This yeah. is the invitation for all Wednesday fans to make creepy edits of you guys. Yes. Thank you, Hunter. <laughs> Precisely. Set to, a, set to a Billie Eilish song. Let's go. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much for having me on. I again love your show. So this is so fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's been. You. It's also been like ages since I've seen you. I hope I see you again soon. Yeah, I know. It'd be great. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. The Golden Globes, truly the Jan Brady of award season. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> I feel like anyone could sort of say that you have an award. It's just sort of like saying your boyfriend uh, is George Glass. Yeah, no. It's also one of those things where it's like winning an American Music Award. Like, it's exciting because somebody is reading your name and you are holding a statue. But then you get home and you're like, I mean, I don't want to put this out. I know you're like you're like around like real actors, you know, like they're like oh, nobody has a Golden Globe in our school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we we've we've been we've been to Sally Field's home. Okay, the the Oscars are on display. Right. No, oh, I've held them. One one of them. <laughs> no, they're only five years apart, but I feel like one is in significantly worse condition than the other one. Sally, <laughs> let's get some refurbishing going on. Um. But listen, the Globes are back, and honestly, shout out to, you know, um, Abbott Elementary for getting all these. I mean, I feel like everyone involved in Abbott was just sort of like, it's really nice to be recognized because we're a new show, um, and this will do things for us in the industry, and especially for the writing staff, etc. Um, but they were also just sort of like, but the Golden Globes are still kind of racist and whack. And also, um, the TV component of the Golden Globes has always been the most laughable because it's like the new show Olympics. Like, who, who was newest? Uh, Mozart in the Jungle, we're obsessed with you. You came out today, you know? <laughs> it's like, they, they really want to get in on the ground floor of awarding something. They like being the first to do it. So mm-hmm. often, you'll see, a, you know, it's like, it's like when Rachel Bloom won for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Not that she did not deserve more awards, mm-hmm. obviously. Like, t- talk about an Olympics of a show. But, yeah. Uh, that was one of those things where, like, they got her first. So yeah, and they nominated Issa um, for Insecure. They nominated um, Gina Rodriguez, Jane the Virgin. Mm-hmm. You know, right. um, yeah, she won. Uh, Rachel Brosnahan. Yeah, Nina Dunham won for Girls. Right, right at the start. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that always is one aspect of it. Um, but with so many fucking shows, it's just like it's hard to do that now. I mean, Dahmer was nominated, which. Of course, it was going to be nominated. I still haven't watched Dahmer. I don't give a fuck. I know. I, I have nothing left to learn. I just, like, true crime po- podcasts don't even appeal to me that much. I just, it, it, it feels 
I don't want to say it feels icky. It just feels like who wants to fucking see that? Yeah. I mean, it's partially the being from Milwaukee and knowing about Dahmer, but also oh, just yes. sort of like, it just feels like, okay, we've yeah. like, we've done these sleek things of him so much. It's just, it's time to move on. I have to say though, for the best motion picture drama category, I, I don't know that they're what I would pick, but Avatar, The Way of Water, Elvis, The Fablemans, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick, that's at least kind of juicy altogether. Like all those movies have nothing to do with each other and they're kind of big and splashy in different ways. You could go a bunch of different directions. Like The Fablemans is sentimental. Elvis obviously is, you know, a, a another Baz Luhrmann candy colored circus top gun Maverick, which i love you know, your uncle saw yeah you loved elvis i again I, I think i brought this up before it reminded me of evita and that they made a montage not a movie mm. well i for me personally i think that um it's i've had diminishing returns with baz Luhrmann films like yeah i watched Romeo and julia the first time when we were in lockdown and it was bad um to me and, you know, I've le- liked Moulin Rouge less and less every time I watch it, but Elvis just really sort of hit for me. It just felt so weird and sort of, it, it, like, it tranced me. I think it had a large part to do with Austin Butler's performance. You're definitely yes. not because of Tom Hanks's. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Uh, it's so weird that even Tom Hanks gets a flop era, and it is definitely right now. Uh, that that movie he's doing about um, being Otto a mean neighbor... Yeah, the it's it should be called the mean neighbor. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, baby, does yeah. does does Chet have some debts? Yeah, why are you playing this? Yeah, this minor character on Bewitched. <laughs> um, then we've got uh, musical or comedy, which is Babylon, Banshees of Inisherin, everything, everywhere, all at once, Glass Onion, and Triangle of Sadness. I have not seen Banshees yet. Um, That's even, also the only one I haven't seen. Yes. Which is, and Babylon, which, sorry. Uh, um, and uh, Martin McDonough is also in my list of um, creators whose work is inspired by soap operas. So right. I love him. Uh, and I will be seeing that. Babylon, I will see at gunpoint. Uh, <laughs> but um, I want to say I would be up for any of these sort of really winning because I just saw Triangle of Sadness last week. Me too. And it is so fucking good. Also, I mean, like, I'm not sure about Palm Door winning, which it did, but <laughs> Triangle of Sadness is a movie starring, first of all, Harris Dickinson, who is great, loved him in Beach Rats. Um, it also stars this uh, actress, uh, Charlby Dean, as his influencer girlfriend, who actually passed away a couple of months ago after a, a sudden illness uh she's great in the movie but anyway it, it takes this movie takes uh a couple of gigantic plot twists and a couple of utterly eye-popping disaster scenes i don't think that's giving away anything um and i just appreciated the gall of the movie because it is downright disgusting at times and then it turns into survivor there's an actress in this movie dolly de leone was nominated for a golden globe and the performance she gives, the, the performance she gives is the first time i have seen someone give a Juilliard level performance as a reality contestant. That is what she is doing in this movie. I feel like we are constantly waiting for like reality TV characters to turn into, you know, the people that the Kate Blanchett's and the Julianne Moore, Julianne Moore's play. And in this movie, she is just delicious. It really oh. would be a fantastic Oscar nomination. You're knocking Kelly Worcester like that. <laughs> <laughs> she plays two idols. Worcester. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Right. Wait, wait. Um, who are you talking about? Kelly Wurstler is the uh, interior designer. Oh no, sorry. Um, Kelly Wigglesworth. Sorry. No, no, no. Kelly Department? Wigglesworth. Kelly yeah. Wigglesworth. Kelly yeah. Wigglesworth. And there are too many white women named Kelly, and then last names W. What's going right. on? <laughs> right. It's confusing. Yes. Um. Ruben Ostlin, who directed that, also did um, Force Majeure. He did The Square. I fucking love The Square. Uh, I'm I'm an Ostlin stan. So sure. I'm like, if everyone who's responded to like my Instagram story, a friend of mine, like, I love Triangle of Sadness. So I was like, have you seen The Square? They haven't seen The Square. I'm like, well, you need to go see the fucking Square. That movie, that is a movie that is so fucking weird and has like, there's a dinner scene in it. Have you seen The Square? No, I've not. Okay, there's a dinner scene in it, which is just sort of like one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in a film up until like Triangle of Sadness. He really does gross out comedy very well, but also does like, you feel like your skin is crawling. Like even mm-hmm. the opening of Triangle of Sadness was so like, uncom- uh, was so uncomfortable with the, um, that guy like interviewing the male models and having it, them do weird it, stuff. I was like, that was so, so long. I can't even look at this. <laughs> I was like, it please was stop. Who, he, he was trying to, the, the character is like trying to be like funny in a sort of like access Hollywood interviewee way. And the, the models who are shirtless are all so uncomfortable. And it just holds on the scene. It like it, to say you, you know how like the, the phrase you can't look away. You can't look at this. Like yeah. I, my my neck is like jolting to the right, <laughs> trying not to watch the scene. Um, I want to point out the best actress in a musical or comedy category because everybody here is good. Leslie Manville, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. As you know, we befriended Isabel Huppert this year, so we're a little bit in the bag for that. But Michelle Yeoh and Everything Everywhere All at Once. She's she's going to body this category. It's definitely going to be her. And I have to tell you. This matchup between her and Kate Blanchett, and I think that's ultimately who it will come down to. I have not seen Till yet. I have not mm-hmm. seen Danielle Deadweiler, who was blanked in this uh, at the Golden Globes, very shockingly. Um, it's it's turning into an Olivia Coleman Glenn Close sort of battle. I mm. uh, the, the stakes are high, and I I kind of vacillate by the day based on who I really think it should go to because. Michelle gives a one of a kind performance. There's such hard performances to compare. Kate Blanchett is giving you this operatic gothic um spiral and then michelle yo is giving you a performance where she is constantly reacting to something new at any given moment whether it's a multiverse or like a, a character is throwing something at her or a character has changed you've never seen somebody have to do more reacting in a movie mm-hmm. i mean and i haven't seen um olivia coleman yet in uh, empire of light but you know i always love anything set in a movie theater you know annie baker's the flick um, <laughs> yes the opening of scream 2 yes yeah <clears throat> i mean you know we, we're, we just very much love uh, movie theater culture you know yes right um yes the movie the majestic definitely jim carrey's best work i'm kidding if you could sit through that something's wrong with you <laughs> um, also something that's lost to us you know i feel like going to the movies you know isn't is not what it used to be i loved i truly loved going to the mall every weekend barely like knowing it's yes this new thing is playing but sometimes you don't know what else is playing and just sort of like taking it all in there was some someone was tweeting about too that with all the movies out now and marketing and with like you know people don't go out anymore so you know there's not billboards and you know like newspapers are gone it's sort of hard to tell what's in theaters now yeah you have to go on like the amc app yeah and right. most people don't do that. A lot like the large movie going audience doesn't do that. So 
they'll miss a lot of like things that they probably would have gone to see before. Man, you, I, you just brought back the visual of looking through a newspaper at movie times. What a crazy... I mean, did we live in the 1920s? What the fuck is that? And also, if you remember specifically, buying a ticket in line before they had um, automated things for you to buy them or before you could buy them at home and being stuck behind someone asking um, the person selling the movie tickets what each movie's about. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so painful. <laughs> yes. Titanic. Go on. Um, uh, yes. Painful. No, I remember you would be looking at movie times and then get distracted and read Peanuts or whatever was right above that. Anyway, um, Angela Bassett nominated for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Guys, she kind of had like a scene and a half. I don't know. <laughs> Are we sure? I feel like. I feel like that's making up for the wealth of nominations that Angela Bassett has deserved. Yes, right. Okay, fine. And Jamie Lee Curtis, maybe the same situation, everything, everywhere, all at once. I think maybe Stephanie Hsu is the better performance in that movie, and people are just psyched for Jamie Lee Curtis, and they're always like, oh, finally, she'll get an Oscar nomination. I don't mean to be a dick. What do you think she deserve an Oscar nomination for? Because it sounds like you either are saying true lies or what, like a fish called Wanda? Like, what? What's the movie I'm missing? <laughs> Um, perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Memorable leotard. Wonderful leotard. I'm talking about Aretha Franklin now. That's interesting, though, like, because whenever I think about, you know, a actor that we've done for a long time, you know, you're always sort of like, well, I'd love if they got an Oscar, you know? And I feel like that's why we have, like, Sandra Bullock winning right. for, um, you know... Um, the Blind Side. Yeah. Um, I blocked the name out. <laughs> um but jamie the curse yeah I'm like what would she be nominated for like what would she win for i suppose you're right it'd be it would have to be a fish called wanda right right which also of course has an oscar winning performance in it so maybe it feels intuitively correct to other people also in this category carrie mulligan and she said did you see this movie i have no plans to Okay, well, let me tell you, it's exactly what you think it is. Jody Cantor and Megan Chewy at the, you know, the beginning of the Me Too movement, they're reporting on Harvey Weinstein. Ronan Farrow is actually almost a villain in this. They're like, we just heard that <laughs> Ronan Farrow's also reporting. Like, it, he, they're like, oh, we have to move faster. It's really funny. But uh, one of the few movies I've ever seen that wanted to me to be a podcast, because all it mm. is is people getting on the phone or being like, I have to get on the phone now. And so you're just paying attention to voices the entire time, and there's not really much to look at. Um, but I'm happy for Carrie Mulligan. Obviously, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, listen, women's stories matter. They just matter. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Actually, is that Reese Witherspoon? That's Reese Witherspoon. Okay, yeah, I forgot who said that on The View, I believe. <laughs> um, that's That's just another one of those films where I just sort of feel like I truly hate the whipping up a story about something that sort of really just happened. Yeah. Uh, and feeling like you're not really diving into it. I mean, there's always the argument that all the president's men happened right after Watergate, but I'm like, mm -hmm. the caliber there was better. I mean, this is, this she said is like, it's giving bombshell. And I'm right. sad that I had to sit through Bombshell. Ugh, Bombshell sucked. Also, you're right. It's the same principle. Also, there's something about a journalism movie. And I know we had Spotlight a few years ago, which, you know, was a pretty thrilling best picture. And everybody liked it. But, like, something that really makes a movie like that um, come alive is 
like hardcore dramatic acting. And by that, I mean like Dustin Hoffman was always a little unhinged. Like there's like an anger component. And then you have like Jason Robards as the editor who, you know, he's got this like Easter Island statue looking fucking face. And he says things like, Oh, back in my day as a reporter, you know, it's just like, there's, there's lots of character going on there. Whereas here, I, I feel like they almost play the characters with too much dignity in order for it to be any good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause we're sort of in this era of like, you know, these women, like, Bombshell was just basically like, okay, we have to take down Rupert Murdoch. And so, like, everyone who took down Rupert Murdoch is a hero. I'm like, okay, they're also white supremacists who work at Fox News. You know, like, where's the nuance here? You know? And, then and also, like that movie, it this is an extraordinary thing that occurred. And they make it all basically seem just like methodical and step by step and like every other movie you've seen. It's like they lose the thing that makes it special. Right. And I guess it's easy, you know, like she said, you know, like, and I haven't seen it yet, and I probably will. Um, but, you know, there's something just about like spotlight, right? You know, where it's sort of like tapping into the community, like dealing with, you know, um, these priest allegations and these things like that. You know, it just, it just felt like there was a sense of foreboding that was in it. And yeah. It was just like, I guess the difference is just between well made and not well made, you know, because like a journalism movie can be great. You know, you can get, you can get Nightcrawler, you know, like, almost famous um shattered glass yeah oh god i love shattered glass i love, love shattered that. glass shout out to when we had all the hopes in the world for hayden christian so <laughs> i i remember exactly that month yes and i am not one of those people who thinks that he could never act i truly think that like being in star wars sucked his ability to act out of him uh, i george lucas you will pay and i know you have the money so stop but by, speaking of being seated, I will be watching this award show because what the fuck is it? So I'm ready. Yeah, I'm sort of glad it's bad. You know, it's goofy. It's whatever. I mean, where else are you going to have Zendaya in a category opposite Hillary Swank? Right. Wow. Alaska Daily, real television show. You can't tell me it's not. Now it has a nomination. Every time I see ads for it, like on a subway or something, I'm always like, this is a simulation, right? Like this is this is this is a fake TV show in a David Lynch TV show, right? Yes, uh, yeah, it does feel like Thirty Rock sketch, etc. But you know what? Maybe she's amazing. The woman has two Oscars. All right, when we're back, it's time for keep it. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis, what's your Keep It this week? Um, I think I'm just a reverberation of what's already occurring on the internet this week. But my Keep It is to the movie The Whale, which I saw this past weekend. A couple things going on here. First of all, the main attention is towards whether this movie, which stars Brendan Fraser in a comeback performance, and by the way, a really good performance, Um, as a man, and it's based on a play by Samuel Hunter, who is uh, 600 pounds. His uh, life has basically gotten away from him since his partner passed away. And he is basically determined to like eat himself to death. Like he's, he wants to die basically. And he lives this sedentary life. He is a, uh, uh, an English teacher or at least a rhetoric teacher, basically teaches kids to write essays over zoom. And he doesn't even put his face on the camera because he's too ashamed of what he looks like. Um, so they never see him. Um, I'm going to start with the problems with this movie that other people don't seem to be talking about wretched supporting performances. And I mean, unreal. I'm, 
like so bizarre. I, I don't know what's happening. First of all, she's not the worst person in this movie. People are talking about a nomination for Hong Chow. Absolutely not. This is somebody who <laughs> this character is trying to get. Uh, she's the uh, sister of his late partner. And she basically is there to put her hands on her hips and be like, you're doing this again. You're getting in. She's like like this because it's like a play and they're stuck in this one room. She's this person who comes over, stands there with arms akimbo and tells him, you've got to get your life in order. Then there's this um, uh, religious missionary who comes by and he's this young kind of Mormonish looking guy. He's actually not bad. Then there's Sadie Sink, who plays his estranged daughter who comes back into his life. I guess I have to blame Darren Aronofsky because the performance is so at a 10. She comes in and is immediately so insulting to him, so rude, and so shrill constantly. It makes no sense. And then later on, his ex-wife, played by Samantha Morton, who, by the way, is really good in She Said, um, Mm. gives a shockingly unrealistic performance as somebody who is, I guess, still mad at him. And the way I would characterize what's wrong with this play, or the the way I would characterize what's wrong with this movie is it feels like a play in all the worst ways, which is there are characters who begin lines with God damn it, that kind of thing. And mm. then, and then also there's the subject matter of the movie, which is, I think there are probably people like this who exist of like, you know, like people who are despairing, who are, um, um, who, who, who ha- still have kind of a light in them, but like, you, you know, the light has gone out in the world for them. But I still feel like in a world where you don't have obese characters in like rom-coms, you don't have obese characters in thrillers. This is a movie that satisfies the curiosity of cruel onlookers, which is to mm-hmm. say somebody who looks at an obese person and says, don't they feel bad about themselves? Or um, uh, don't they know they're killing themselves? And then this play and movie then says, yes, this is somebody who says yes to those things. And I just feel like this character has no moment of real levity of, of joy other than love for his daughter who is fucking horrible to him. And I feel like it's not just an optics problem. It's just this is not something that should exist in a world where we don't give obese people humanity in the arts as characters. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, like, um, obviously, like, Guy Branham, Roxanne Gay, uh, I think even Alonzo Dalton on his podcast, too, yes. talked about, you know, like, this representation of fat characters in the media and just sort of um, how it just feels sort of gross and cruel you know exploitative yeah yeah and it, you know it feels like uh it's like it's like whenever i see that one um it's like whenever i see that fucking um neil abute play fat pig which i know is supposed to be like oh it's about how like this guy feels about this woman and he's with but i'm like i also just sort of hate it i also hate neil abute um and i'm sad that darren aronofsky has gone down this route too because i'm like oh I hate it when sexy people disappoint me. (laughs) Right. Well, also it's like when you think of the canon of Darren Aronofsky, you have a lot of people who are confined in certain ways, right? And and, Mm. and in a body horror way too. Um, You know, you think of Black Swan or Mother, you know, there's a sense of grimness that's usually reflected in flesh wounds and things like that. Mm. And so when you compare this movie to that, it feels like he just sees fatness as, you know, this mm-hmm. gross, unsightly obstacle. That's it. Right. Yeah. And I doubt anybody involved in the making of it, you know, the spat themselves, on the crew, like, or anything, you know, like, anyone involved in the actual production of it is just sort of like, 
putting their own stories and sort of journeys into this. You know, it just feels like people on looking, yeah. um, which is, I don't know. Um, Dara Aronofsky, like, needs to go back to the sisters, okay? The women, <laughs> yes. okay? Mother, yeah. okay? Ellen Burstyn in Requiem, yes. still, okay? Still his best work, that performance, okay? yes. Like, like get, ba- get back to that, okay? Get back to, like, Nina, okay? Like, trying to be the <laughs> swan. Like, women's stories matter. And I wasn't just saying it as a joke. Like, and I think they matter the most for Darren Aronofsky, because this isn't cutting it. Right. I will say the one time he made a man interesting was um, the wrestler, which is iconic. Yes, but, um, and of course Marissa Tomei steals that too. So there yeah, you, have it. you know. So I haven't seen the whale yet, but oh mm. yeah, I'm curious what you think. Again, like it's so weird to see a movie with a bunch of bad performances. I can't think of the last time that was the case. Ira, yeah. what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week goes to uh there's so much I can say keep it this week too. You know, like um I was gonna bring up Elon Musk, but a whole audience of people said keep it to him at Dave Chappelle's show. Right. Um, so that's iconic. Um, so I guess my keep it this week is going to be to SZA. Oh. Yes, that's let right. Me, you previewed this earlier. Let me tell you something, Solana. <laughs> I am so distressed by this album <laughs> um, i'm distressed because it is so depressing um oh. she was talking about i'd rather be i'd rather be in hell than alone i'd rather be in jail than alone like uh, i'm gonna kill my ex i'm gonna kill his girlfriend uh i will say i just killed my ex is a fantastic line uh in the song kill bill um my favorite song on the albums um seek and destroy it's just sort of like that is about, you know, like blowing up a relationship, all missions deployed. I'm like, I just can't take all this on my heart into 2023. <laughs> right. I love the album. I think it's great. I'm glad that she is working through like all her fucking trauma uh, and just like putting them on the page, you know, Put it, putting it on wax. But I need personally to not be marred in um, revenge and old relationships and <laughs> being sad next year. Um, gotcha. so, I, so I think the album's amazing, but um, since I can't have this energy next year, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be like that that woman um, stepping from one year to the next with her bag, you know, like leaving those things behind. I'm gonna be leaving um, SOS in 2022. Um, what's the name of the song co-written by Lizzo that sounds a little bit like Avril Lavigne could have sang it? F two F. I enjoy that one. That was a nice swing mm. from her, I thought. But um, yeah, I could have used another pop hook. I know people are obsessed with this album. I don't mean to be naysaying. It's so funny. It's, so it's so funny. Good. I keep listening to it over and over. Um, I feel like you're more of an upbeat R and B listener. You know, yes, I feel you're not. You're right. not like you're not vibes. N- uh, nothing about me is vibes. In fact, I'm, I'm like, anti I'm, vibes. I'm yeah. like, like I. You failed vibology. Yeah. In, in college, famously. <laughs> Which is crazy because it was my minor. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, yeah, the album was just vibes. I mean, and I fucking love SZA. And I think she's so smart. Uh, and I think I love just how she has really just made this sprawling album that isn't particularly, you know, there's no through line. Um, mm-hmm. I think, but I think, you know, like, 
you've got really great highs, you know, like, um, like I said, those first two songs. I mean, I love Notice Me, Gone Girl, like her link up with Phoebe Bridgers is great. You know, I love the song with um, Travis Scott, but I didn't even really need the features that much, you know, like it's she's a very strong artist. And to come back after five years with a new album and have everyone just sort of um, have another big cultural moment in a year of so many artist cultural moments, Beyonce, Taylor, Drake, can you just sort of like snatch it at the end of the year uh, is really exciting. Unfortunately, you said the words Phoebe Bridgers, which is really triggering to me at this point because she took Paul Mescal away from the rest of us. And uh, I thought that was rude artistically. So I love that they met. Um, yeah, on some like Zoom chat or something. On like Instagram Live or something. Instagram Live. She yes, was, or that's something. Right. I think that she was on something talking about how much she loved normal people. Oh. So she tweeted back in 2020 when we were all locked down, by the way, um, finished normal people and now I'm sad and horny. Oh, wait. And Paul replied, I'm officially dead. Uh, and then Phoebe responded with that meme uh, like, no, don't die. You're so talented. Uh -huh. uh. <laughs> and he responded too late, dead. And then I guess they went on Instagram Live to talk about, you know, normal people and the music and whatever. And... The rest is history. It's actually offensively cute. I mean, it's, down uh, it's the line. Like, <laughs> that, is, that is a beautiful meet cute. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, sickening. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm upset. It's so lovely. Uh, maybe Brian Cranston will officiate their way. Yeah. Oh, my God. We should have asked more about that anyway. I I'm just like, I love this. I would love a reality series of Brian Cranston officiating weddings. That would be cute. Yeah, an adorable move for him. He's on TV anyway. Why not? Anyway, that's our show this week. So thanks to Hunter Dunn for joining us. And uh, we will see you next week with our last episode of the year. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. 
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.